You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You're going to notice in our conversation guide that there's a lot to fill in. This message series is going to be very, um, I don't want to say note-driven because that sounds a little hokey, but it's going to require you to participate, and this is one way I'm asking you to participate. So if you don't have a pen, Bert, uh, the lovely Bert Hogue is going to walk around um, with a pen box and hand out pens for you so you can follow along. This is going to be a very, I think, pivotal series for us. Uh, Bert, we need to work on your walk, brother. Um, but he's, he's going to hand out your pen. Raise your hand if you need a pen, please. <laughs> so, Bert, I've embarrassed Bert enough for Bert. Um, we're going to go ahead and go through this series together, and it's going to uh, want to make sure you have plenty of notes and plenty of things to go by. Because this isn't just a, a Sunday deal and it's not just a series. This is actually something God has called us to understand. And so we need to understand this uh, individually as families, as individuals, and as a family of God. I want to open with this text, Dave. It's not on the screen, um, but I, I just I feel compelled to share this because uh, everything flows from this. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold on to the message I proclaimed to you unless you believed for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important that I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve, then he appeared to five hundred brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, at his coming, those who belong. Christ. This idea of first fruits. This idea of first fruits is not a new concept. It's an Old Testament concept, and it did carry its way into the New Testament way of life. This idea of first fruits is something that we have to come to understand, I believe, in order to live fully into this gospel that we are called to experience, that we are called to enjoy, that we are called to demonstrate in our lives, that we are called to describe to others with our lips, this idea of first fruits. In the Old Testament, first fruits could mean really two basic things. It would be the first ripe of the harvest. It was literally the first fruits. It would be flour, grain, barley, oats, wheat. And it would be what God's people would offer to him. It's the first thing that came. So they're waiting in anticipation for the harvest to come. They've been praying for rain. And instead of running out and, and harvesting the crops and running it inside and enjoying it for themselves and even praising God with it, that wasn't the deal. They were to go harvest the crops. And before they took a bite, they were to gather up some of the first fruits. And they were to take it to God into his house. And they were to offer it to him in praise and thanks before they ever enjoyed a bite. In Exodus 23, 16 and 19, you find this to be the case. God had commanded that 
they give of their first fruits, the first of their produce, the best of their best. That would be quite anxious because who knows whether or not there would be another harvest. In Deuteronomy 18, you also find first fruits used in the context of first choice. That it wasn't just about first harvest, it was also about first choice. It was also about taking the best off of the top. It was also about taking what you had, whether it was your choice of wine or oil, and even the wool from the first shearing of your sheep. You would take this to God into his house, and you would offer it to him. This was, God, this is my best choice. I haven't even enjoyed any of this yet, so I, I give it to you in praise and adoration for all that you are, because after all, you're the one who blessed me with these things. And first fruits were acts of worship to God. But not only that, first fruits also took care of the temple priests. First fruits, the fruit and the, 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 the wool and the wine and the oat and the grain. God doesn't need it, so what would God do with it? He would give it to his priests and, and take care of them based upon this offering that came from the community. So you didn't have this idea of first fruits had this sort of spiritually forming effect, this communal effect, because it took care of the priesthood who had no harvest, who had no field. The Levites were the only tribe of Judah who did not have a field and have things. So this was God's provision for them as well. And they celebrated as a community together. This idea of first fruits wasn't just a private deal. It was a communal experience too. So it had a communal and corporate effect. We come together, God, in this great festival and we party and we celebrate who you are. Here's our best of our best. Here's the first of our best. And then it did have individual meaning as well. That, and it would usually be led by the male of the household. And so he would take the first choice of his own home and he would take it before the priests of God. And there was a bit of a ritual to this. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 26 because I want to read this. It's a fairly lengthy text, but it's meaningful because it captures the context. This has so much to do with our Christian faith. This is our roots. This is where we come from. It would do us well to understand it. And if Christ is the first fruits, I want to know what first fruits means. Deuteronomy 26, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you take a possession of it and live in it, you must take some of the first of all the land's produce that you harvest from the land Yahweh your God is giving you, and put it in a container. Then go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to have his name dwell. When you come before the priest who is serving at that time, you must say this to him. Listen to this declaration. Today I acknowledge to the Lord your God that I have entered the land, swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest will take the container from your hand and place it before the altar of the Lord your God. And you are to respond by saying in the presence of the Lord your God this. Listen to this worship. Listen to for who is the center of this worship. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with a few people and lived there. There he became a great, powerful, and populous nation. But the Egyptians mistreated and afflicted us and forced us to do hard labor. So we called out to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our cry and saw our misery, hardship, and oppression. Then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm with terrifying power and with signs and wonders. 
He led us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have now brought the first of the land's produce that you, Lord, have given me. And then Moses goes on and says, You will then place the container before the Lord your God and bow down to him. You, the Levite, which would be the priesthood, and the foreign resident among you will, enjoy, will rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. And so you have this idea of first fruits being this incredible act of worship that honors and memorializes God's provision, that celebrates the gift of God. And it came right off the top. And not only would the individual celebrate, but the priest would celebrate. Not only would the priest celebrate, but the foreigner would even celebrate. Everyone would celebrate God's bountiful provision and care over his people. And God wanted this very tangible, sacrificial offering to come right off the top. Now, the interesting thing about first fruits is there wasn't a command given for a specific amount. God allowed this to be decided in the heart of the individual. But God made it very clear, I know your hearts. I know if you're really giving me your first ripe, and I know if you're really giving me your first choice, or if you're kind of giving me your leftovers. And so you have this first fruits, and it really communicated and was associated with three basic ideas, and it's in your bulletin. It was this idea of worship. It honored God as the giver and sustainer of all things. And it was associated with this idea of spiritual formation. It, it formed the heart of the individual spiritually. It deepened their faith and trust in God. But not only that, it had a spiritual formation effect in the community. It shaped the community of the heart. It redirected the emphasis of the community's heart. It formed them from the inside out, this gift. And then it was about joining in God's mission. It was about taking care of the work of ministry. Remember, it went to the work of ministry in the temple. It funded, for lack of a better word, not only the lifestyle of the priesthood, which would have been the entire tribe, but also everything that kind of went on in the work of ministry in the temple and the community of God. And it was, about, it was part, partly about God being proclaimed and being known among not only the nation of Israel, but also the other nations. <clears throat> but this wasn't the only offering that God asked of his people. He also asked of them a very specific offering that would serve the three, same three basic ideas. And this is the offering that we are all most familiar with, and it's the offering of tithes. It was the offering of a tenth. It was the offering of giving a tenth of their gross, a tenth of their whole amount. Now, it was also to be honored in the sense of the first fruits principle, meaning that it wasn't just a tenth of leftovers. It would also be the tenth of the whole shebang, a tenth of the whole harvest, and it would be the top. It would be the best of the best, and it would be offered to God. Deuteronomy 26, verse 19. When you have finished paying all the tenth of your produce in the third year, the year of the tenth, you are to give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then you will say in the presence of the Lord your God, I have taken the consecrated portion out of my house. The consecrated portion. So not only were the first fruits 
an offering to God that was commanded. The tithe and the tenth was saying, okay, I'm going to take this very special piece, this consecrated part out of my life and lay it on the altar of God. And then God says, and so it takes care of the whole community. He says, I have also given to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow according to all the commands you gave me. I have not violated or forgotten your commands. I have not eaten any of it while in mourning or removed any of it while unclean or offered any of it for the deed. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done all you commanded me. Look down from your holy dwelling from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you swore to your fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so this tithe had in a sense this dedication, this consecration. It was all God's, but they took this this very specific amount that God had commanded and laid it out to him. And they called out for God's blessing as they blessed God. They called out for God's blessing as they blessed others. And it was all an act of worship. It was all there to help form them spiritually. And it was all a part of joining in on God's mission. And here's the thing about tithing, because most of us think it was just an Old Testament law thing, but tithing took place long before the law was ever given. See, way back in the day in Genesis, Abraham, when he was blessed to honor the priest Melchizedek, he tithed all that he had to him. So tithing wasn't just an Old Testament law thing. For whatever reason, it was a part of the very fabric of the social existence of Eastern people. Matter of fact, you read in Genesis 28, verse 20, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, tithing to God as well. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, if he provides me with food to eat, you see that? If he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you have given to me. Tithing was a recognition that God had given. It was all his, and so the least I can do, Jacob says, is is give you a tenth. Tithing, too, was about worship. It was about spiritual formation. It was about joining in God's mission. The interesting thing is I've heard Christians give so much pushback on this idea of tithing. In my tenure, I've heard Christians talk so much about how tithing is an Old Testament law thing. And again, it wasn't just Old Testament. It's an interesting dilemma we found ourselves in because tithing was associated with promises of the Old Testament but yet we still believe in the promise that God will never end the world with a flood again or we still believe the promise of Proverbs that says trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight here's the thing about the series church If the Lord really is the Lord of the harvest, then we have to learn how to bless him with what he's harvested. The job you have, you might have interviewed for it. You might have the skill set and experience to take it on, but the Lord gave you the job. So what you gain from that, it's all his. And he might be asking something of us. He might be asking something of us. My aim in this series is not guilt-driven giving. It gets us nowhere. And it's not blessing-driven giving. 
Give to God and he'll give back to you. Though that may be true, I think the New Testament aim is where we have to go. And the New Testament aim is grace-driven giving. But our whole understanding of giving does flow, I believe, from this idea of tithing and not only tithing, but tithing and going beyond the tithe. Because no matter how you look at it, tithing and going beyond the tithe and grace-driven giving is always still going to be about three basic ideas. Worship, because it honors God as the giver and creator and sustainer of it all. It will spiritually form us because it will challenge us and shape us. And it will always be about joining in God's mission because it funds the work of ministry. And one other confession about tithing. I really am puzzled when Christians give a bit of pushback to this. That a tenth of our gross income or first fruits should be given to God. Especially when we fight over the amounts. And here's why. Because the greatest objection to the tenth, the greatest objection to a tithe, is very, very, very simple. It all belongs to God. It all does. And so we can, we can fuss and argue and we can plan and, and, die, you know, and, and figure out, well, is it a tenth? Look, I think the tenth principle still stands. I believe God has associated some promises to this idea of tithe and we're going to look at that. But let's not forget the most important thing about everything that we have. All of our money, all of our things belong to God. And I believe that tithing was given to us as a gift. As a gift to help us understand this. Because it is ultimately about a worshipful heart. It was ultimately about an act of worship. So I'm going to give three basic ideas today. And then I'm going to attach to it six reasons as to why these ideas are rooted in Scripture. And why they are what they are. The first basic idea is worship. The first reason is that tithing and going beyond the tithe in our lives. Honors the creator as giver and owner of all. When we release a tenth of our income to God, it honors him. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. It is all God. It is absolutely true. And here's the thing, church, that you need to understand about me. Because I'm coming up on my 11th month as a minister here. I will not and do not preach on tithing often. I just don't. Right now, in the season of life of this church, we need to have this conversation. But I don't just preach on this a lot. And here's why. Because of this verse. Because the truth of this verse says that it all belongs to God. So I would much rather try and aim for the higher ethic. I would much rather try and come from Scripture where the New Testament comes from Scripture too and says that missional living is what it's about. It's about the people of God and Jesus Christ who know they've been given life by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, understanding that it all belongs to God. And so we give from that kind of heart set that says it all belongs to God. But yes, there are times when we need to have these very specific conversations, these very specific things that deal with kingdom lifestyle and even talk about the tithe. But the truth is, whatever you do with every cent that you have Whatever, every cent, it, it expresses how you view God. How you spend your money expresses exactly how you view God and what he means to you. How I spend my money demonstrates what I value in this world. And not only that, demonstrates how I think about my last few years on this earth. Because how we spend our money 
is always an expression of our priorities of life. Always. In the most basic sense. And we cannot separate our money from God. He's the giver and blesser of it too. And money is not a bad thing. But how you spend every cent is an indicator of how you view God. So here's what I want to suggest. Your personal financial budget is your own theological statement. The budget of this church is a theological statement of this church. It expresses to God what we hold most important. It expresses to God what you consider most valuable. It expresses to God what you think and what I think of God, and it's true. I think this is why Jesus spoke about money the way that he did as often as he did. Jesus spoke about money almost more than he spoke about anything else, church. And maybe he knew that there was going to be a danger associated with this. God knows us all too well. And so God then, I think, assigns to us an amount. He assigns to us and he says, hey, I'm going to give you some promises around this idea of a tenth. Because he knows that something is wrong with me. And here's the thing I got to thinking about. God knows that something's wrong with me if I answer Allison's concern that I don't give her enough time. If she comes to me and says, Fred, you don't give me enough time. And I say to Allison, but Allison, all of my time is your time. All of my time is yours and Ian's time. It's all yours. But I don't have any special, consecrated, quality time for her. That statement rings hollow. What she wants is some special quality time, something particular, something specific, something that demonstrates the intention that all of my time is her time, something that proves that all of my time is her time. See, God did this when he gave the day of rest. All the days belonged to him, but yet he said, keep this day for me for it is holy. He wanted God's people to learn how to give intentionally of their time and, yes, of their money. And so if you want to know, I believe that giving a tenth of our income proves that we believe that all of our money is God's. I think it says something. It's one thing to say, it's all yours. And it's another thing to say, here's a planned, intentional amount that is yours. That demonstrates, Father, that it is all Yours. To put it plainly, tithing and going beyond is an act of worship. But it's also about spiritual formation. And I confess to you guys that this is probably the most awkward section of this sermon and probably one of the most awkward sections of uh, any sermon that I've ever preached. But it's biblical, it's true, and I have to express it to, to carry out this fully. You remember the tribe of Levi... In Numbers chapter 18, when God said to Aaron that you shall have an inheritance in their land, um, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And to the sons of Levi, behold, I've given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed, the service of the tent of meeting. The idea of the tithe, when we, when we tithe to God, we are living out a community principle. And this is a spiritual formation issue. It honors an Old Testament principle of community life. When we tithe, it supports the work of ministry. 
It supports the work of ministry fully from the Levites' well-being and beyond. I try to tell Allison all the time, if anybody should understand what it means to live solely off of the provision of the Lord, it should be his ministers. If anybody gets that, it should be us. Some people are called, just like the Levites, some people are called to not be involved in money-making, sort of uh, traditional money-making occupation. Some people are called to this full-time vocational ministry, and some people are not. I was a stockbroker before I was in ministry. When I baptized my first client into Christ, I realized there was nothing else I could do in my life when I was going to school. And I just knew I could not be a stockbroker anymore. I did well at it and enjoyed it. If I had to go back in the business world, that's what I'd choose to do. But it was always told to me, do anything else if you can do, if you do anything other than ministry if you can. That was always, and I never, I thought it was an apathetic, cynical sort of approach and advice. I didn't think it was good advice at all. I kind of, kind of understand that sometimes, but I didn't understand what that meant. And what they did mean was, if you can do another vocation, then you're not called to do this. And I know that there's nothing else I can do with my life. Same with Dave, same with Garrett, at least in this season of our life. And so when we live out the tithe, we understand that this spiritually forms us because it lives out a community principle of God. And if the question is raised whether or not Jesus in the New Testament continued this principle for the sake of the church, I offer just a handful of things. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus, it seems like he's sort of endorsing tithing, saying don't neglect it, but it's, it's not as essential as justice, love, and mercy. That is for certain, but it still is to be done. And then some may say, well, he was talking to Jews in an Old Testament setting, so I plead to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. If you have your Bibles, go there. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is trying to make the case that living out the tithe and living out tithing and beyond takes care of the work of ministry. And he goes on and he says, Am I not free? Am I not a possible? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And then he goes on and says in verse 6, Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes, who, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? Or isn't he really saying it is for us? Yes, this is written for us because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope and sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is too much. If we, is it too much that we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we've not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. And I love that statement because Paul is saying that a minister is never money-driven. And I love that. And then he goes on and he appeals to Old Testament law. He appeals to this very same concept. Don't you know that those who perform the, new, the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings at the altar in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel? I find it interesting 
that he reminds the church that in the Old Testament economy, there was a system in which the Levites worked in the temple and lived off the tithes. And then he turns around and attaches at the 14, and he says that the Lord commanded those who preach the gospel earn their living from the gospel. Paul, at the very least, is saying those who spend their lives in the ministry and service should be supported by Christians. But since he draws to the attention of the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that the tithe became the Christian guideline in the church too. And so I lay this out, not to prove that you should pay a minister. You guys have been doing that for 47 years. I lay this out to show that tithing seemed to be a principle of the New Testament church even. And I think that's worth considering. I give you this. Another reason why it spiritually forms us, tithing. And this is the one that really, really messes with my life. Is it guards us from greed. You really think about that. Jesus said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Paul said, therefore put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. He calls it idolatry, which is really heavy language. Greed, contrary to Gordon Gecko in Wall Street, is not good. Greed can be idolatry in our lives. Greed is something, I think, that subtly creeps into our lives. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. It is so hard in this world where the economy is shaking to find contentment, isn't it? I mean, we're worried about our 401k plans, and we're worried about all these different things, and we want new clothes, and we want bigger houses, and we want better cars. But greed is a subtle tension we have to wrestle with, and I believe that tithing and going beyond the tithe wrestles us and presses into greed. I would not really consider myself a particularly greedy person by the definition of the world, but the fact of the matter is my family and I, we wrestle with greed. We want a house. You may say there's nothing wrong with wanting a house. It's not greedy to want a house. I get that. I'm not saying that wanting things is greedy. I'm saying that greed works its way in subtly in our lives, and we need to be very careful, and that tithing and going beyond presses against this greed. We want a house. We want things for Ian. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Ian doesn't have to have every car toy known to man, but, man, when we go to Target, I just want to buy him a $2 car so he can enjoy and play with it. You know, he doesn't need it. He's not saying, Father, Father. I must have the car in order to sustain my living. We give it to him because we love him, want him to play with it, and it's the funnest thing. And, you know, 14 trips to Target, and we've basically blown his college fund. <laughs> but the reality of it is, me and my family want things. I mean, I want things. I, I want pants that fit. All right? I'm just going to come out and say it. I, I, yeah, Brian, I want pants that fit. You know what? I, I want, you may not know this, but I have these really cool plaid shorts. And I have this shirt that I think goes fine with the plaid shorts. And, and, and as I was considering greed and I was considering tithing and beyond, I, I, I just need some help because I may need to buy a new shirt, but I really struggle with this. <laughs> so I was thinking, because see, Discipleship Weekend came and I came sporting this outfit. And Tammy walks in and the first thing she says to me, isn't good morning, my dear brother in Christ? She says to me, what in the world are you wearing? (laughs) To which then Courtney chimes in, and then Aaron chimes in. So now I'm going to take a vote. 
Raise your hand if you think this shirt goes with these pants. No, 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 Steve Rash, no, no, like this, no, you got to go all, raise your hand, brother, you own it. All right, all right, because I owned it when I wore this. Raise your hand if you think this doesn't go. All right, then clearly I need a new shirt. Tammy bought me a new shirt. She literally did. She brought it Sunday. Sweet Tammy. But you know, we want things, and it's okay to want things. But it's always a question of our wants and needs, isn't it? It's always a question of wants and needs. And greed becomes a tension. And here's what tithing can do for you, church. Here's what it can do for me. Every time we give a tithe, we must deal with the desire for what we might have bought for ourselves. To give is not to buy. And so when I take my income and I set aside a tenth for the Lord, I realize that that's not expendable income. And if I'm already pressed to the max, I am realize that's not expendable. It becomes a weekly tension in my life now every time I get this. And I fight grief almost every day. But it gives an answer. God gives an answer to this tension. And I believe God gives an answer to greed. And I believe it's tithing. In tithing and going beyond, God asks us daily, do we desire most his name being known? Or do I really need 10% more comfort? 10% more security. Are 10% more stuff? Or do I desire his name being known? Mm, that is a tough tension. But it's a tension nonetheless. Jesus said your heart is where your treasure is. So tithing going beyond presses into this culture of greed. It presses into this culture of consumerism. And we would do well to embrace it. We really would. It spiritually forms us. Our final text is 2 Corinthians 9. If you have your Bibles turned there, this is where we'll find our last three reasons. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly because we're going to unpack these in a little more detail over the next three weeks. 2 Corinthians, 9 verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. See, that's a heart thing. And if I'm sitting here thinking that the tithe is just too much, there's a really good chance that the tithe is just right because it'll challenge me a bit. And that certainly isn't sparingly in my heart. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do this as he has decided in his heart. It's always going to be a heart issue. It's our choice. Not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Verse 10, now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest, is that word, of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. You find basically three points out of this text. The whole context here is giving, by the way. 
The whole context is giving. You find that in tithing and going beyond, that it is God's way of providing you, the tither and generous giver, sufficient money for needs both individually and even us as a church family. It forms us because it calls us to trust on God and his provision for us. He who sows generously will reap generously. Well, God, can you just give that to me first so I can sow it first? But isn't that true? <laughs> like, I, you know, God, God, can you, you know, can you, you know, give me, a, you know, I want to go to my bank and have an extra, you know, can you do that for me? And God's saying, no, this is about faith. Giving, tithing and going beyond, giving in a regular discipline and generous way, it simply good sits in view of the promises of God. When you look at verse 6, I want you to look at verse 6. He who sows generously will also reap generously. Verse 6 is explained in verse 8 by God's pledge. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So you have this idea that God's pledge is He's going to make us sufficient and give us everything we need to excel, not just get by, but excel in every good work. That may not mean a new shirt for Fred. Tammy may buy it for me instead. Thank you, Tammy. But God will provide one way or the other. That's his promise. That's what he said. Now, what is my response? My response is to trust him fully. It seems like this is Paul's way of expressing Malachi 3.10, which is like the text for tithing, right? But I didn't just want to go there. I wanted us to get there. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Here's the greatest text, Malachi 3.10, that this works. It is a promise. God made a promise in this text. He said, you tithe, test me. Test me. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9? Sow generously and God will give generously. If you have your bulletins, here's the fifth point. It spiritually forms us because it demonstrates and strengthens our faith. Hebrews 13, 5, listen to this. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never desert you or forsake you. So here's what I want to offer. And I'm asking you to please hear me on this. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's what you and I have to understand when it comes to tithing and going beyond. God can do more with our 90% than we can with our 100%. The question is, do you believe that? There should be no reason why me and my family should not tithe. Because it's tied right to the promise and character of God. It is worship. It is spiritual formation. It challenges us and shapes us and molds us into the people we need to be. And it calls us joined in God's mission. And I'm just going to simply give you this last point. And like I said, we'll unpack these later. It is God's way of accomplishing many good works. That is what tithing does. Tithing funds the work of ministry. It funds the work of benevolence. It funds the work of good works. It is way God goes out and carries out mission through us. And that is why tithing makes sense for us, church. Three basic ideas. 
Tithing and going beyond is worship, it's spiritual formation, and it's joining in God's mission. And you have your six reasons. The question for us is, do we trust God? Do we trust the Lord of the harvest? And therefore, are we willing to honor Him as the one who blesses? 